Thank you for joining us for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NABIP's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your healthcare happy hour. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour. On this week's episode, NABIP's Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, Marcy Buckner, is here to review some items that were released over the holidays, including the end-of-year omnibus package, a delay on certain CAA reporting requirements, and a new report on surprise billing. So welcome to the first-ever NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy. Let's begin with the omnibus bill, the year-end package that Congress passed into law in the last days of December. The package was well over $1 trillion, so it encompassed many items, but two in particular were supported by NABIP, including one regarding telehealth. Can you provide folks with some details on that? Yes. As many of you know, in previous COVID legislation, there were provisions that allowed for folks to use their HSA funds for telehealth if they were in a high deductible health plan. And we've been through different rounds of this provision expiring. Most recently, before this omnibus bill, we had the original COVID provisions expired at the end of 2021. And then Congress acted after a lot of advocacy from, at the time, NEHU and our members and our Capitol Conference in February of 2022. And we, following that meeting, saw a reinstatement of this special provision to use HSA funds for telehealth put back into place in March of this year, but that was set to end on December 31st of this year. So in the omnibus bill, we saw Congress act to once again extend this special provision. So this allows for more flexibilities for the use of HSA funds more specifically for telehealth, like I mentioned, and this will go for two years. That's really important to mention. We saw a number of different time periods that were being negotiated on the Hill. We were kind of worried that we would only get one year. We ended up getting two years. So now it will expire December of 2024. And we will be working with all of you to try to get this put in place permanently because we do recognize what a benefit it is to increase access to care to be able to use HSA funds for telehealth. So we will continue to work on this, but we are at the moment thrilled to have this provision extended for another two years. And there was another provision in the omnibus bill regarding long-term care that NABIP has also supported for some time. So which provision was this? This is another item that we advocated on during Capitol Conference in 2022, and it would allow for the use of 401k funds to pay for long-term care premiums. 
this was at the time we were talking about this last February. It was a standalone bill supported by Toomey. This then was able to get wrapped into this larger omnibus bill. And here we just believe, while it's not necessarily changing the landscape for access to long-term care, it does allow for a different pathway to access and pay for premiums by being able to use those 401k funds to pay the premiums without being penalized for using those funds. So we recognize that there are a lot of barriers to purchasing long-term care, and we also recognize the importance of having long-term care, especially with as many folks becoming seniors and retiring as we have every year. So this is a, a great opportunity for people who may not otherwise be able to afford to pay their premiums for long-term care. In addition to those two items, another relevant provision in the omnibus bill was an amendment to the date of the, quote, Medicaid unwinding. So what's that about? So our loyal listeners will know that we have talked about the Medicaid unwinding, and this is what is anticipated to happen when people who went on to Medicaid during the pandemic, during the national emergency, once the emergency ends, are able to go off of Medicaid. So if you went on to Medicaid during the national emergency, you will stay on Medicaid until the end of the national emergency. You won't roll off based on a change in income or employment status. And so what they're terming unwinding is the time period when the national health emergency ends and we see people starting to roll off or unwind off of Medicaid and onto either the individual market, if that is where their income base allows them to enroll, or onto the employer market if they have an employer offer of coverage. And what we saw Congress acting on here was something that they did in tandem with some regulatory action from the administration, and it was moving up the anticipated date of the end of the national health emergency while also giving states a little bit more time to be able to determine what they're going to do and how they're going to handle those people that are going to be unwinding off of Medicaid. Because remember, it is technically a state program, although there is large federal oversight, but the states are determining eligibility and how those funds are spent. And so there needs to be a lot of time spent in how they're going to treat these populations and making sure that those people that are enrolled in Medicaid are educated and understand they may be rolling off of coverage based on their income, but that they do have the opportunity to have coverage, whether it's in the individual or group market based on their, their individual situations. Moving on to regulatory items, the agencies released an FAQ document over the holidays delaying a certain requirement created by a section of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. So what was this requirement? The requirement was for plan sponsors and typically in this case, carriers or employers, depending on if you're fully insured or self-insured, to release certain information about prescription drug use in their plans. And some of this information was very specific down to the number of prescriptions that are, are written on a plan, 
to the number of pills of a certain type of drug that are prescribed within a plan. So a lot of information that when we responded to this initially pointed out that it's very specific information that not all plan sponsors may have access to. They may have to work with their third-party administrator, TPA, to be able to access some of this information. So there would be times where this information would be difficult to gather. On top of that, the administration, since the passage of the CAA, has released a few different pieces of rulemaking about the prescription drug reporting, but none of it has been specific about how this will be done. And so we know a lot of plan sponsors were worried that they may be reporting the information incorrectly just because of a lack of uniformity in what the government is asking for. So in the FAQs that were released, we saw that they are going to allow for a good faith effort for implementing the prescription drug reporting from the plan sponsors. And what this means is that as long as the plan sponsor does as much as they can to try to comply with the rules, the way that they're written with the information that they have, that they'll be considered being in compliance with the rule. This is something that we've seen from time to time throughout the years on different types of implementation. And usually it's done to give kind of a grace period for employers or whatever entity is the requirement is being placed on. In this case, it's employers and plan sponsors. The good faith effort is there to be able to give a grace period for those entities to be able to kind of learn how to be in compliance with the rule, but it also allows the government some time to see where more guidance may be needed, either in the form of regulatory guidance or maybe in FAQs or a notice or something like that to be able to streamline the process. So this is really something that benefits both the plan sponsors and the government as they go forward with this good faith effort for prescription drug reporting under the CAA. Also relating to the Consolidated Appropriations Act, CMS issued a couple of items related to surprise billing, more specifically, the independent dispute resolution process, also known simply as the IDR process. One of these items was some guidance regarding the IDR process. So what did this guidance say? The biggest change that we saw here was an increase in the administrative fee to participate in the ind independent dispute resolution or IDR process. And it increased from $50 to $350 beginning on January 1st of this year. And it's not really clear exactly why we saw this increase. I know when they originally drafted the rule and had the $50 as the administrative fee, it was seen as it was making it very accessible for folks to be able to, to bring a surprise bill forward and go into the IDR process to dispute it. And I, I don't believe that the $350, I don't believe that increase is in any way to try to discourage people from participating in disputing their claims. Although we did see in some of the other materials that Dan is talking about that were released last week by the administration, we did see that there was a, a large number of surprise bills that were adjudicated or have begun the IDR process. Many of them have not completed the IDR process 
but a number much larger than was originally anticipated by the administration and the previous administration when the No Surprises Act passed and, uh, during the Trump administration, and then the rules were written by the Biden administration. So it, this may be because of the large volume of people that have come forward to try to dispute their surprise bills using this administrative system, and that they really are just increasing the fee to be able to support and sustain the ability to respond, because there are a limited amount of IDREs, which is the independent dispute resolution entities, which are the ones that are able to work through these disputes between the consumer or carrier and the healthcare provider. So on first glance, that's what it seems that we're seeing here and not an attempt to really stifle or prevent people from coming forward by having an administrative fee that's financially burdensome. So as Marcy just mentioned, the other item CMS released was a comprehensive report on the IDR process for the dates from April 15th through September 30th, 2022. The report contains some findings that folks may find interesting, including the significant increase in IDR cases. Could you review some of these findings? The basic findings were similar to what I mentioned earlier, that from that time period, April 15th to September 30th of 2022, between payers and providers, so payers being the carriers representing the consumers and providers being the healthcare providers, between those two parties, over 90,000 disputes were initiated through the federal IDR portal. And this was, and I'm quoting the report here, significantly more than the number of disputes the departments initially estimated would be submitted for a full year. So in that time period, they had significantly more than they thought they would even have in 12 months. And most of the disputes submitted during this time period were for both emergency and non-emergency items. So where initially we thought that there would be a lot more on possibly emergency that could easily be adjudicated and administrative, we're seeing a lot of non-emergency items as well, which I believe takes a little bit more time based on some of the different factors there. But most of the disputes that we saw here of those 90,000 were submitted by out-of-network healthcare providers and facilities. And only a a little bit over 23,000 disputes were closed during that time period. And they all were using certified IDR entities, reaching a payment determination in about 15% of the closed disputes. But they also found that a a little under 70% of closed disputes were ineligible for the federal IDR process. So they're seeing some of these that are coming forward and having to be turned away because they don't meet the qualifications of IDR for surprise billing for a number of different reasons. Also in the report mentioned that they are experiencing challenges determining the eligibility of disputes since, and again, I'm quoting from the report here, they were requiring significantly more review and processing by certified IDR entities than initially anticipated. So again, a struggle with volume here. I think something else that was anticipated by the rulemaking and and by putting this in place was that it would discourage healthcare providers from surprise billing from billing any outrageous amount above the in-network amount. We're clearly not seeing that since we're seeing providers and consumers continuing to dispute in large volume some of these 
surprise bills and, and out of network providers. So, and again, this was our first year with this. So we're going to have to track the data and continue to watch this to see if we continue to see the trends and numbers. But we're also watching this because there are still a number of lawsuits that are pending and going through the appellate system based on the No Surprises Act and the interpretation of what Congress passed by the agencies and the way that they structured the rules for the IDR process. So this information is very interesting and good information and data to have, but we're still a long way from having this counted as one of the closed disputes. So before we conclude today, we should mention that, as many may know, January 3rd was the first day of the new 118th Congress. And the first few days already saw uh, a lot of action. Isn't that right, Marcy? That's right. As we're recording, there is not a Speaker of the House. And technically, the 118th Congress hasn't been called into session because the House hasn't been sworn in yet because they're waiting on a Speaker. So all of this is on tap for us to talk about next week. Next week, we'll be featuring our Vice Presidents of Congressional Affairs, John Green, and our new addition, Michael Andel, who will be telling us about their day at the Capitol on January 3rd, spending the day with open houses on the House and Senate side, and of course, tracking the Speaker election, as well as committee assignments for a number of our NABIP PAC-supported members of Congress. It is now time for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So, Marcy, what are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to the first recording of the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour. We are thrilled to be the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals, representing agents and brokers and benefits consultants and professionals across the country. Here's to the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for NABIP's Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. For more information on NABIP's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit nabip.org.